This is Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. And I'm Andrew. Andrew, I understand recently you bought a house. I did recently buy a house, and I bought uh, something of a unicorn. It was a, I believe it used to be called in history, a starter home. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) You have have found a precious artifact of the before time. Yes. Long, long ago. Yeah, and it's it's smallish, but four bedrooms. They're four small bedrooms. Uh, it's brick. I know that's that's a thing that people used to build out of. I've heard rumors. Area. Yes, I believe you also live in a brick house that is literally a hundred years old. That is correct. I, I this was also my starter home, and I'm going to I'm going to be buried <laughs> under the, the the basement. I don't think I'm leaving. You also stole this home from its previous owner. Yeah, such was the market in 2015. God bless America. It would be your recent home buying experience, though, unlocked many vistas for us to talk about in regards to housing as a commodity and the quote affordable housing crisis end quote that is uh, a, a frequently cited political talking point, I guess you'd say, issue. And uh, you noted it is a cartel, homeownership. It is a problem for which there will never be a solution by uh, accidental design of the system we find ourselves in. Please elaborate. So I want to start by defining cartel as a morally neutral term the way economists use it, because I have enough training to, like, kind of describe myself as an economist, but not quite. I have a master's degree, Um, but I think that way in a lot of ways. So a cartel is a collaboration to use state force to restrict supply. And by restricting supply and controlling supply, you, you you raise the price and you capture most of that benefit because you control said supply. So... Uh, an example would be OPEC. Uh, OPEC collaborates to decide exactly how much they want to raise or lower supply, supply by, and by lowering supply, they make a bunch of money for themselves. It's a little harder to see in a lot of other contexts, and one of those is homeownership, where a bunch of people, very politically powerful people, because they live in a place that has small elections for small city councils of small municipalities that are suburbs often of larger cities will vote and they vote as a block to make sure that while everyone is in favor of affordable housing, they're not in favor of affordable housing near them. And I understand this. I've had conversations with cousins and friends who have been advocates of shutting down construction projects near them. And I think that's, I wouldn't do that. I'm, I, I'm in as they come, not in a Democrat who wants to save San Francisco's image sense, but in a, I believe in property rights. And if you own a plot of land and want to build on it, that's your business sense. But I think that, I think the fact <laughs> that you're only now entering into a circumstance where that will personally cost you money that might, I'm going to be interested to see over the next 10 years how uh, how your opinion on that changes. We'll put it that way. 
Right, and I don't blame people for not wanting a bunch of Section 8 housing to be built next to them. That's that's a completely understandable set of incentives that they face. It It's actually a prisoner's dilemma, where if everyone cooperates and builds and builds if everyone builds housing everyone is better off but everyone has an incentive to unilaterally deviate from that and only like if everyone else is building housing we don't need to build it right here we can preserve our neighborhood character and our the value of our properties will go up and that's people's largest asset usually so i totally understand caring about the performance of that asset not only that in this circumstance where everyone else is building housing but you are not and your neighborhood retains a certain as you said character your property values will not only increase it will increase even more rapidly because it is the sole holdout of this environment so the 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 incentive to not allow housing to be built is right there in the pocketbook of every person who owns a house. Because as you pointed out, a home shouldn't be a forever inflating asset. It should be something that actually gets used up, right? Like it's a structure. It's built by man. It's built of materials. It will degrade over time and have to be replaced. So like any other good that eventually has to be replaced, uh, why is that it it, it just increases in value apparently permanently over time. And the, the practical reason is that turns out we're really good at building houses, buildings in general. They tend to be the last a long time, not just like ancient ruins, but you can look at, you know, the row houses in places like Baltimore and some of their, their oldest districts that are like now coming in up on 300 years old still there, still being used. They've seen renovation, they've seen improvement, but they're still fundamentally the same building they were when they originally were built. So this this good is not as, uh, it is not going to be used up anytime soon. Your 1950s starter home is probably going to be there for another 100 years, provided like you replace the roof every once in a while and tend to the things that need to be uh, replaced on a periodic basis because a little bit more fragile like windows and that sort of thing. And that's the same way my house is 100 years old, but it doesn't look or feel like it's 100 years old. And it doesn't take much to keep it in that state. But the problem is that we shouldn't be aiming for keeping it in that state, right? Like you said my house will be there in 100 years. My kids might be in it. That's the only way that they'll have a house. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Dark but true. <laughs> But when we bought a new car recently, we were astonished at how well it handled, how well it performed, everything that was really nice. Uh, we, You would expect that same feeling for houses if they could just be produced using current techniques enough to meet market demand. They would consistently improve. They would be... They would have a bunch of smart home features built in instead of added on. The The roofs would be incredible. The f- basement uh, waterproofing would just all be top standard. Because instead of having these 300-year-old row houses, if you could legally build a new house there, you'd build a new modern quality house there. Everything would be so much better. But what has happened in reality? 
Uh, what has happened in reality is that a couple of forces have captured this. The part of it is the homeowners cartel, as we discussed. Another part of it is a another cartel of lawyers who uh, have very expensive hours and ha- make sure that you can, in order to build anything, you need to first commission several traffic impact studies and environmental impact studies and uh, spend a bunch of lawyer hours making sure that what you're building is legal and not legal in the sense of not doing something bad, but legal. You're you're not talking about single family homes in this case though. Like if, when you start to have law hours involved, that's when you're from, you know, if you've got a, a zoned residential lot and you want to build a residential house on it, and you're not trying to change zoning or, or do something that the, the the property was not already intended to be used for, you don't tend to have that level of complication. I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be surprised at how the electrical codes, the, the electrician that I hired walked through and found seven things that weren't up to code. It's all grandfathered in. Right. But in order to do anything, you just have to, there's miles of red tape, even single family homes on single family lots. There's all this red tape that you have to fight through to develop a new development. So if you have this starting fixed cost of lots of lawyer hours to build anything, you're not going to pay that cost and then build a hundred thousand dollars starting home. It doesn't make sense. You're going to pay that cost and build a, $500,000 $500,000 McMansion. And that's mostly what we see get built in, in current, current year. Yeah, the, the cost of actually executing on a build is such, and the sunk cost, even if you, you manage to be in a situation where you don't have a ton of red tape. I mean, if you're pouring that concrete foundation, you're going to invest the kind of money necessary to, to build the bones of a house. Then you're in a, you, you might as well turn it into an upsell. You're you cutting yourself off at building the basic six-figure home is just leaving money on the table. And because that's the incentives of the market, that's what you see when you look into the far suburbs and you see what single-family home development is, is occurring. It's further and further out on cheaper and cheaper land that gets connected to existing infrastructure. You see very samey, Architecturally bland, I guess would be the polite way of putting it, upmarket homes. You call them McMansions, but that's what they are. They, they, there's not a lot of uh, design nuance to any of them on purpose so that they can just kind of be pre-built and, and laid down with a, like existing kind of uh, furniture of parts to be able to build that frame and that style, right? And it's got enough in terms of its modernity that it's going to attract a larger amount in its size internally, which is the big part. It's got enough bedrooms and bathrooms. That's the thing that decides the value of your home is how many fucking bedrooms and bathrooms that you have that you can get an extra few hundred thousand dollars for it versus something that's a starter home. And that means some starter homes get built, which means the only starter homes that exist are the ones that existed essentially what before 1960. You know, like, yeah, like the the whole market for building a starter single family home basically dried up with the flight to the suburbs. 
But when you had the ur- the urban core start to dissipate and you had people start to move out, that is when you had your last wave of real construction that was accessible to your middle American family at a quote unquote starter home price. In terms of the place we live, which is Cincinnati, Ohio, you think of like a suburb like Delhi, perhaps is like indicative of that. Um, you might think of, you know, of green township, like these close urban suburbs, right? Where mm-hmm. you're moving as well. Isn't actually far from where you are now, but it's just north of where the city is, essentially. Right. It, it's the I, I don't know if there's if there's history here that I don't know, but uh Reagan Highway is kind of the beltway before two seventy five was the beltway. It's it's just on the other side of that. Well the Reagan didn't actually get finished until 1998. So it was never really a a piece of the puzzle during this era. Okay. But, you know, you are just north of where the city kind of ends, the city limit ends. And that was the first wave of the urban flight. And that is when the last time basically starter homes got built. And And also there was a baby boom in this time. So you have large, rapidly increasing population. But, uh, as as we're prone to doing on this podcast, we should note that not only is Cincinnati one of the better places in terms of the U.S., but the U.S. is actually this is a global problem. There, the affordability crisis in the U.K. is like San Francisco, but everywhere. Yeah, and they have dual problems there, where they they not only have the same economic incentive issue to building starter homes, but then they have historic preservation rules for their existing home stock that basically forbids any kind of serious renovation to them that might make them more useful. (laughs) So you you can't build new housing because it's expensive. You can't actually retrofit old housing by law (laughs) because like if you own a house with like a thatched roof, it always has to be a thatched roof forever. It can never not be. Yeah. So you've got that problem. And then uh, they build a lot of like post-war council housing, which is, I guess, like equivalent-ish to our Section 8 public housing to to store people, right? And it was cheap and effective and it's basically these giant block housing things. Uh, You can do that. You can warehouse people in that, but it doesn't actually solve your problem because eventually people are going to want to move out of that. And so, again, what we're seeing is incumbency, and the vo- the people who live there are powerful voters in city council elections. The people who could live there don't vote there. The people who could rent there don't vote there. So, in a democratic sense, you have this, some people are represented and others aren't, and that ends with this power imbalance. Um and a, a bad outcome democratically where some uh, stakeholders don't have a voice in the public process. And this is, you, know, you can go down the line, not just in almost every developed country, but through history that it turns out owning property and having claim to a place of uh, your domicile to your home and for those rights to be protected by law is been contentious as long as the concept has existed. In Roman history, a major issue was we've promised all these legionaries a set of farmland. 
Turns out we we're not. We're fresh out. We're fresh out. Send them to Germany. <laughs> it's going to be fine. We don't have it. We don't have farmland to give them. So, problem. And uh, that that led to some mutinies and some uh, loss of control, a loss of one republic. The point of this is to say people are going to talk about the affordable housing crisis in quotes as if it is some modern and new revelation. And it turns out it is not. It is a issue that has existed as long as the concept of people owning property has existed. And particularly in a democratic pluralistic society, people are going to self-select into cartel mode to protect their economic interests, whether they're doing it consciously or subconsciously. I happily do it consciously. I am very much <laughs> invested and, and and I'm, I'm okay. I feel okay admitting that, right? Like, Yes, I would prefer that my housing, uh, my, my house's value continues to rise. It doesn't have to rise as fast as it is, you know, like I'm not like married to a certain value or anything like that, but a general line going up-ish is my, my, my guiding star, you know, like that's really what I want. And I am definitely never going to be in favor of my next door neighbor selling their lot so they can build some kind of high rise where there's presently a duplex, right? Like, nope, nope, I'm not into that. Don't want that. Would would go to meetings to protest it and would do everything in my power to reject it because that's in my economic interests. And I have to look out for my economic interests because nobody else is going to, right? Like, I'm it. I'm the only one who's going to defend them. So I need to do that. Otherwise, I will bear the economic burden for everyone else's societal good. And that's not fair. Now, is the solution that the state comes to me and says, we're going to cut you a check for the value of that your house is going to lose as a consequence of building this? And that's how we make it right for you. That's an argument. That is a way the state could be involved in this process and get NIMBYs to YIMBYs to say. By state, do you mean the government or the literal state? Because one of the solutions to the problem is make the scale of government larger because you, uh, you can't represent the interests of potential renters in said high rise next to you in your municipality, but you can at the state level. So that's why you get a lot of things like HUD grants to do exactly what you're saying, where you, you have to pay some people off so that the whole polity that's relevant will compensate you for you taking a, a little loss that benefits everybody else. I mean, if, from an effectiveness standpoint, obviously you have to take it out of local politics. Otherwise, people like me are going to be able to monkey with the machinery and make it so it never gets bought, even if I'm going to get a check in the end. Because I'd still prefer everything being the way it is now. I'd like my stability of my current circumstances than the unknown future. So yes, I mean, if you, if you actually want to move forward with the this idea, you'd have to blow up the responsible party to something, at least on the state level, so that you could actually do it. But whatever apparatus of the, quote, state you wish to envision in this circumstance, its role has to be as economic arbiter to make right whatever has occurred as a consequence of this change in order to really get past the, the, the first set of hurdles to doing this. 
You got everything else that you've already mentioned in terms of what it takes to build and the economic incentives of what you're building and all of that. And that may be even outside the the, the scope of this conversation right now. But if you're going to make it so that homeowners aren't going to self-select into being an economically interested cartel, you're just going to have to compensate for that and strongly to do it. And I think it's important. I know I, as a frequent Redditor, and consumer of the vagaries of populist anger about how we are the screwed generation, there would be a lot less of it if people could afford a house. If house, if buying your first house cost a hundred thousand instead of, I feel lucky to have gotten there at two, two hundred thousand. As someone who paid less than a hundred thousand, I feel exceptionally lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't kidding when I said you stole it from the previous day. I, I did. I did. And it's worth a lot now. Like, I have a positive net worth because of this place. <laughs> what a mean feat that was. Turns out if you steal a whole house, that does good things for your net worth. I don't I don't know why you're surprised by this. <laughs> but, I mean, there's going to be a whole subset of people who are hearing us talk about hundred and two hundred thousand dollars and $200,000 homes and be like, what is this? strange narnia that these people live in this utopia called cincinnati ohio Ohio, yeah <laughs> apparently the city's got a lot to offer except including an affordable housing stock <laughs> my goodness and then that there are some some new externalities into this equation that that reminds me of which is the remote work phenomenon and how over the course of the two years of like covid intensity you saw a lot of cheap places to live get very overrun uh, by by people who are of the laptop class, and not just in the United States, but uh, internationally. Uh, there was a whole there was a whole article I read about uh, expats living in Mexico, and uh, the locals not enjoying everything being vastly more expensive because these gringos showed up with all this all this money that they're spending locally because it's super cheap to live there. I mean, I applied for jobs in California when I was looking for a job that that wasn't possible before. Well, Andrew, what I wanted to talk about was something a little less expensive than a house, but only barely. And that is Maybe more. And that's gasoline. I actually wanted to talk about energy politics overall because I was reflecting with you the other day about the concept of peak oil and what that was when I was in college and what we were being taught was going to be the energy environment in 20 years at that time. And now it's 20 years later from that time. And where we are is so fundamentally different than uh, what we taught was possible to be the case. It is uh, somewhat absurd. And yes, I am old. Thank you. Uh, Part of the dynamic of our show is that I am, probably 15 years, I guess, older than you, Andrew, something like that from different Uh, generational cohort. We'll say that the wise aged mentor. Yeah. Well, just barely older than you enough to know some things you don't, I guess would be the, uh, the right actual way to describe it, but he's he's basically got a gray beard. No, I mean, you're, you're, I'm an elder millennial and you're a zoomer is really the dynamic. You're an elder zoomer and I'm an elder millennial. You're on the cutting edge of that zoomer tech right you're 25 you're you know you're 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 at the prime of your life you're you're emerging into the the corporate and professional world so i'm 27 oh you're i'm sorry 27 now okay whatever 
and I'm I'm almost forty, <laughs> you know. And I'm I'm a seize. I've seen some things. I've experienced some things that you're about to experience, like home ownership, for example. And so I have some things to impart, but I have not figured it out. I have, I have merely the potholes I stepped into to warn you of. <laughs> when I was in college, circa 2001, the concept of peak oil was the talk of our like domestic policy classes. And that was, we're, we're going to reach a point within the next you know generation here where the amount of oil you're going to be able to get out of the ground with known exploration is going to enter in a decline period. And we'll only get smaller and smaller and smaller. And given the expansionary nature of capitalist economies, this is going to create an inflection point in which radical change and potential geopolitical conflict will be inevitable. Okay, so if the line must go up to sustain larger populations, but suddenly the oil line can no longer go up, and in fact it is going down, if only slightly, then Clearly, the economic line can no longer go up, which means you're just going to everything. The brakes are going to fucking slam everywhere. And now it's going to matter who controls what. You're going to have all kinds of great power competition for oil field access to energy and oil fields. And whoever has got the greenest, least amount of uh, use of petrochemicals is going to be the country who's in the catbird seat. So... We have to reorganize our whole technological innovation and all of the technology that fuels modern society so that we can prepare for this moment. That is what we were taught in 2001. By 2021, all of this was such an atrocious lie as if to be uh, a, a comedy, right? What, what happened? Well, it turns out uh, there was a lot more petrochemicals in the ground than we had ever anticipated <laughs> it turns out we hadn't found all of the oil we only begun to find all of, we've uh, this was merely an appetizer of the oil that was out there and it turns out all we needed was technological innovation and extraction and not in reinventing the whole of the world economy and fracking came to be as as a way to not only get at oil but perhaps even more importantly vast 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 quantities of natural gas. Natural gas was certainly something that was already being explored and mined and captured and used, but fracking made it so that natural gas could fully and completely supplant coal as the primary petrochemical burned for electricity globally, aside from China. We used to use a lot of coal because it's cheaper and easier to find. So when that change happened, and suddenly we just like have infinite natural gas, particularly in the United States, a net energy importer, and had been a net energy importer for decades, suddenly was in a position to become an energy exporter specifically in natural gas. Suddenly we are in a position to be able to supply Europe with natural gas through liquefying that natural gas and shipping it overseas. Did we? You know, this whole innovation happens within this 20-year period. You get the, the the fracking boom begins, you see the industry develop, and then you see w- what you could probably call a boom-bust cycle, except the bust is entirely manufactured by the domestic politics of the United States. And not at all dictated by the needs of the global economy for energy, which is still as profound as it's ever been. 
And this is, of course, has all been complicated by a, a massive uh, war that's taking place in Eastern Europe at the moment. We'll, we'll get to that because it does play into you know the circumstances Europe falls uh, presently finds itself in. But I think it very strange that 20 years ago, the impulse was we're going to run out of energy at some point, And it is our generation's task to build a new economy that can be durable through this period of petrochemical access decline and replace it with something else to we have as much of this stuff as we will ever need. We have hundreds of years worth of whatever it is that we want to burn. That is no longer the issue whatsoever. We live in a land of plenty, but now we're going to constrain exploitation of that resource, not for economic reasons, but for political reasons. Which well, is ostensibly a, climate reasons. Ostensibly climate reasons, but if it, and and that's where I think you have to separate the 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 spin from reality. For climate reasons, this has been a huge win. Getting rid of coal has been a huge, a tremendous part of why global uh, emissions have actually decreased significantly since fracking began. Like that, talk about something that's been so completely undersold over the for the the period of this innovation. The United States has been extraordinarily successful in reducing its carbon emissions because because of fracking. Fracking was entirely by accident. Yeah, like not intentional. Like they did not get into doing this because they wanted to save the planet. They wanted to make some fucking money and get their hands on shit that's valuable. But it turns out they got so much they could just get rid of coal because it was cheaper just to use the local natural gas, which just now had unlimited quantities of it. And guess what? Burns cleaner. Everyone's happier. It is a literal win-win. For the the ecology-minded people and the bloodless capitalists, everyone got something out of that. Uh, and so what happened next was uh, natural gas became this climate-saving wonder drug, and we sold it to our allies in Europe. They never had we we passed out all the permits to live in this land of plenty, and they never saw fit to buy it from anyone else. It was just us and Europe, and we got along great and reduced carbon emissions. You're looking at me like that's not what happened. Yeah, so it turns out a few things went wrong. <laughs> Number one thing that went wrong is, despite the fact that this is the greatest thing that ever happened to the Obama administration and saved the, the economy during his period so, so completely and thoroughly, uh, that he bragged about it openly. I mean, imagine that a Democrat president bragging about ex- about fracking. That was really something that was happening in 2011. Yeah, we're going to need to put that in show notes because I don't think I believe you. <laughs> like this was, it was happening. Like, look at all this energy we get. Look at all these jobs I've created. This is amazing. So there was a domestic political backlash because the apparently the Greens weren't in it just because they you know we were heading to peak oil and we needed to for economic reasons. They, they have political reasons behind their desire to uh, to do this, and that is a desperate wish to restrain how people live. And I don't know how to describe it except like sort of this pathological need on their part. Like when when. Fracking came to be, and it was clear how powerful it was going to wind up being in terms of energy exploitation, and that all of our energy needs for all the foreseeable generations of humans that were going to live in the United States was solved by this. Instead of 
remodulating their argument around doing that action with as little ecological impact as possible is they went whole hog to destroy it. Everything they could like the fracking has a terrible reputation now in the United States because of these groups who would go after at a state level, these operations to highlight the admittedly real shady, you know, like waste disposal things that they were doing. And instead of saying this is a problem that can be solved through better regulation of these particular aspects of this process, sought to have it banned entirely. Like whole states would, they would seek to get it just banned in whole states. Like you can't frack in New York or something like that. And in doing that, they tried to throw the brakes on this miracle thing that occurred. And the only the only reason I can come up with is that they they saw this revolution coming where they're going to be able to constrain and control human behavior, and then it's all slipping away. And this was kind of like their reaction to that. Like, no, you can't you can't back away from this this world we are heading to. So we're 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 going to have to uh, destroy this miracle. I I don't know. Is so, that how you would describe it? No, I think it's a something a lot more primal than that. The story of just um, the Lorax, but Aesopian is really, really old. There's this like, we're not in harmony with nature and we must be. And, you know, you saw that with the rise of the word sustainability around that same period of like, as long as there is some negative thing, some negative value in the equation that isn't balanced out by a positive, like the amount of, oil or natural gas is actually decreasing. The amount of carbon in the atmosphere is actually increasing. We are out of balance with nature and therefore we must, we must repent. We must uh, change our, our ways. So I don't know if it's about control so much as it is, it is about uh, natural human impulses to be in harmony with nature and uh, take care of our environment in ways that, make a lot of sense when you think about like Dunbar's number humanity, where whatever your little local environment is, you have to make sure you're not cutting down trees faster than they can be replaced because that'll take away all of your food. And uh, we know how fragile ecosystems are. So the harmony and balance matters a lot more on like lizard brain scales than it does on geopolitical scales but the real the real giveaway of this is that they're not there is no uh greenpeace doesn't have a lot of power in russia and china so we recently had uh biden flying and fist bumping with the prince of the house of saud yeah it's mohammed bin salman and trying to get them to produce energy because we wouldn't. And that's where you really have a problem where we've restricted this domestically for these, for these noble and valiant reasons. And then we just paid off a bunch of dictators to do it for us. And it turns out we gave money to a bunch of dictators who do not have our best interests at heart. And in many ways, those chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, it turns out ec- ecology and green politics is a luxury of the wealthy. Like, it turns out 
that you can only like if you are sufficiently rich, you can buy carbon offsets for your private jet use. So you can have someone else make up for all of your bad polluting. And that makes you feel good because you've offset the damage you've done because you're just that rich. So the the European part of this is, of course, they could have decided to purchase the this sweet, sweet American liquefied natural gas LNG that would be uh, you know packaged up for their for their use in one of our many ports and shipped right to them, to distribute to all their freezing cold customers in, in winter. But liquefied natural gas is highly explosive and a delicate thing to transport. So there is an expense involved in that that is not present when you can just pipe it in through a pipeline. That's much cheaper. That's much easier. And Europe, much like our political left, is not interested in doing the dirty themselves. They all banned fracking in their countries for the most part. Like in Britain, for example, it's something they're revisiting now. <laughs> that they're facing these historic energy pressures. You know, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, so... We've already started to see movement of maybe they they aren't going to stick to these particular uh, um, uh, strategies here now that they're the rubber has met the road. So what they did instead uh, is they embraced the spirit of Helsinki, which was the concept that land wars in Europe could permanently be avoided post World War II, provided. Economic interconnectedness and interdependentness became the rule across the continent. That in this was, I think the Helsinki conference was in, I want to say maybe the 1980s. I forget exactly when it happened. It was in that post Cold War era. So it might have been late 1980s, kind of like when Perestroika, you know, like Soviet Union maybe hadn't fallen yet, or maybe it was the early 90s and it had fallen. But you had that generation of leadership that was starting to exit that had remembered the second world war, right? That were part of all of the horrors of that period. And they knew that the next generation of leadership wasn't going to have the same lived experiences as them. And as a consequence, it was, it was up to them to set the stage and set a policy that incentivized everyone to not have to figure it out for themselves, right? Like if we know war is hell and we know the damage and destruction and death that can be dealt to an entire, you know, population of people as a consequence of, of banging it out old school, then we need to make it so that our, our inheritors, especially generations down the line for whom there will be no living memory of what we went through, will, will have a system that's in place that's durable to preventing them from fighting. And that meant economic interconnectedness and interdependence such that if everyone's prosperity is reliant on everyone else, then everyone is going to be cool as a consequence. And you see the economic experiment that started there turned into the EU, right? Like that was already percolating under the surface for a lot of different sort of economic codependency reasons. But after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany, the release of the uh, of the Iron Curtain and the integration of some of the states that previously couldn't really be part of those systems. Okay, how do we handle this? Well, let's make it so that we all have to depend on each other. And the the ultimate expression of this spirit of Helsinki was 
trying to civilize Russia and try and bring them into the fold by allowing them to be the gas station of Europe, but in exchange receive this huge capital transfer that they could then use to develop themselves if they saw fit. Like whether you choose to be wise or, or, or not with this huge amount of money you're going to receive as an economic transfer from Europe in exchange for your energy resources is up to you. But we're going to give you the opportunity by building these huge pipelines and saying you will be our source of energy and we will be your source of capital. And together, if we can, if we can civilize you, Russia, if you are no longer going to try and make everyone you know, make, smell your boot in the future, then we're all going to be better off. And that was the experiment there. And I'm being a little generous towards just like the Germany, really, who was at the forefront of this effort. Because I get why. If you're looking at this patchwork of countries that don't necessarily have great relations with each other a lot of the time or didn't before, and you're thinking to yourself, I have to make sure that from, from here to Vladivostok, we don't fucking throw hands anymore. This might be a worthy experiment, right? It has a lot to recommend it. Uh, it worked really well inside of Europe. Uh, the, the, there's, it seems pretty unlikely that anyone within Europe will be throwing hands. Um, so it's, it's very mixed results. And it's probably too much to get into for this. But something I'm very interested in is how Japan and Germany, that worked. We brought them into the fold and we made them international citizens and with China and Russia, it really hasn't. I don't want to get. I mean, two of those countries it. we literally occupied, right? Like, I, it's, there's a key difference where uh, China was an ally, and so so was the Soviet Union. They're on the winning side in the Second World War, right? They were they were part of team team fuck the Axis, and because they were on the team that won. Uh, they weren't subject to that kind of pressure to change or reform or do anything differently. We were supporting Chiang Kai-shek to the day he died, right? Like a brutal dictator in his time, like sitting on Taiwan, angrily waving his fist at the mainland. We still thought we still, we still bankrolled that operation, but you know, Japan and, and Germany represented the defeated powers. So they were subject to our will. And if our will was that they were going to be part of the global community, by God, that is what happened because we controlled their destiny. Now, I do think there's an element of self-selection in that. I think that when you are the clear uh, villains of the world, like like all-time Hall of Fame worst people on the planet, and the victorious forces don't exterminate you, then there is a certain buy-in that you have from those people to change your direction, right? Like, if you're a Japanese citizen in 1945 in the ashes of your country, and you are now getting food shipments from the very people that you were desperately trying to kill not, you know, months before, and they're saying, there's one of two ways this can go. It can go my way, or it can go a really, really dark way. Wouldn't you prefer it if it went you went it went my way? And you go, Yeah, I think I would. I think I like food. I think I like the fact you're rebuilding my country. And I think we will do exactly what you'd like. <laughs> right? And especially when you're occupying forces, particularly in the case of Japan, is actually interested in rebuilding you 
and not making you a colony. Yes. Like, and, and uh, it, you saw and the difference. Germany between... wasn't a colony either. They're a protectorate. Certainly a, a client state in the sense of, like, they exist at our pleasure, but we also defend them. But they are not, they have a degree of self-governance that perhaps, given the history of the United States, we understand how important that self-governance is. But, but to go back to Russia, when we beat them, we gave them too much self-governance. So we didn't beat, we didn't beat them the same way though. The, like the defeat of the Soviet union was certainly we had a fat, we, we factored into the collapse of that system, but when they collapsed and Russia emerged and all the, all, you know, their zone of control as a consequence dissipated, this was not a victory in which a single American troop occupied a single square foot of Russian territory, right? Like they admitted that they could not be the second superpower and ceded that ground and said, we'll be cool. We're done trying to compete with you. You fucking American maniacs with your apparent ability to fucking do anything you want to do. We can't beat you. Capitalism wins. We want to be part of the team, right? That's a different kind of defeat. And when you have this still nuclear armed, very large, very powerful country that's saying, I want to be part of the team now. Let's work that out. You're inclined to give them way more than like a Japan that you will presently have like a whole boatload of troops in. And you are, you are literally on the ground there determining its fate. Like it, you can't dictate terms to Russia. You have to get them to cooperate. They still have nukes. <laughs> they still have the ultimate can, card in international politics. They can just say, we're not, uh, we don't want to play anymore. We're throwing the whole game out and take everyone else down with them. And you don't want so, that. You don't want them throwing, you know, the, the table over and causing everyone to have a bad time. You want them to stay cool. Even if they're not in the game anymore, they can still hang out and chat with everybody. And like, you know, they can still be salty about their defeat, you know, and you'll get them next round, Tiger. It's all right. You know, GG's bring trying to civilize them in this context, right? Especially Germany, who freed themselves from the client state period, was able to get their act together. A couple generations had passed. Different kind of German, you know, person emerged particularly between East and West, but everyone had learned a lesson there. And they offer this olive branch to their ancient enemy to say, come along on the ride with us. You want to be part of the team? This is how you can really be part of the team. Feed our needs. We'll feed your needs. Here's all the capital you'll need. Do whatever you want. That made sense, particularly in this new realm of plenty when it came to the access to this energy because Russia was fracking everywhere they possibly could. They were exploiting this resource as maximally as possible because they're Russian. That's exactly what Russians would do. And so if they're willing to do that and you're Europe and you don't want to, and you have this desire to bring them in closer to you and economically integrate with you so that you ease international tensions and prevent war from breaking out. Great. Let's do that. And we can explore all of our BS green politics and we can have weird teenagers from Nordic countries scold us about our nuclear power plants. And we can we, we can go through this weird kabuki theater on this because in the end, 
really what we want to do is to make it so that Russia is super incentivized never to want to be aggressive again. And they would prefer just to get the checks sent in the mail week after week from their from their European partners. And I think that, that there's something noble about that and its failure uh, is we, we can say it's predictable and we can say this was a weakness and it is fun to point out that Donald Trump literally said to you, this is what's going to happen to you <laughs> if Russia decides that they don't care about the money anymore. And maybe they misunderstood uh, or underestimated Russian nihilism as a, as a force. Uh, but now they're in a position where they they're being pressured to build LNG re- uh, facilities so they can get those sweet sweet shipments from the United States because it turns out Russia is not interested in taking their their money anymore. There's a phenomenon in economics called the resource curse, where a country with a lot of resources will not be as rich as a country with fewer resources. And this is counterintuitive. You'd think like as as good civ players that we are, that you you have resources, you sell the resources, and you get more uh, more wealth as a society. But the the benevolent dictator premise of civ does not map onto real life. In real life, there is a disparity between the incentives of the leadership class and random, in this case, Russians. So there's this phenomenon where. Russians are marching into Ukraine going, man, their streets are nicer than ours. Even though Russia has a way higher GDP per capita, it's all goes to the oligarchs and the oligarchs just are just extracting this money. So Europe tried to bring them into the fold and say, hey, play nice. Russians get money. Forgetting that there is no Russians generally. There are Russian oligarchs and Russian random citizens. Their incentives are not the same. So Yeah, the Europeans yeah. thought that the Russians would act like Europeans and use this money to develop their country and to improve the lives of its citizens because that's what they would do. And because uh, Russia does not operate this way, they wound up empowering a ruling cadre that is now as infinite money being stuffed into their pockets uh, by neighbors to their west, they saw as weak and decadent, and could be bullied. Even and, and were so addicted to what that they were giving them that they could be bullied while still paying for the privilege to be bullied. Like that was how they saw it. In Europe, if you steal a bunch of money from your constituents and build a yacht instead of building their roadways. Uh, some journalists are going to come after you and then you're going to uh, be unelected very quickly. In Russia, if a journalist does come after you, they fall out a window. And Europe <laughs> did not grasp that <laughs> distinction. No, they did not. And it is interesting that they have a solution, Europe does, and that is opening opening their hearts and wallets to the United States because we're still happy to sell them all of the gas in the world, if we can mine it. And, you know, that's where the strategic weakness comes in with why we were, you know, trying to make a deal with Mohammed bin Salman in the first place, because it 
The only thing bad about fracking is that you have to constantly be thinking in advance of how you exploit it because it's not something you can just bring online. It does take years to develop fields, to to get things in place, and to to start extracting the resources. It's not something that is is it is not as easy to manipulate as the as the oil fields available to our Middle Eastern friends, but uh, that was actually being well managed until this most recent presidential administration where they were thinking of like five or six years from now, what do we want to have online? How much capacity do we need to have? You know, what, what does that look like? We've got people who are analyzing those questions and then a different set of political uh, priorities came into play and suddenly you just can't develop things. You can't expand capacity and even utilizing your existing capacity can become harder and harder. So who knows what that future looks like, but I think it very interesting that it is so dramatically different than the world we thought, where instead it is an embarrassment of riches that defines the current political circumstances. And as I mentioned before, these European countries also have a plan B of exploiting their own resources. They can frack in Germany. They can frack in Britain. They can frack in France if they want. They can satisfy these needs for themselves if they choose to abandon their luxury beliefs and adopt more pragmatic approach. And we'll see what bends first, whether it's their, their political desires to maintain this, uh, this pose of, of green concern, or if one freezing winter is enough for their body politic to decide that they're ready to head out into the, the, the mountains and claim whatever it is they can get out of the ground. Refire those cool power plants. Let's get at it. Or they can just do what France does and build nuclear power plants. All sorts of options that aren't be dependent on murderous dictators. Yeah, and, and you know they're going. Even if like the Ukraine-Russian war ended tomorrow, uh, you'd have to assume that those there's no going back. Like the lesson's been learned here. Russia cannot be tamed, and. You know, the, the good part is actually, in a way, in terms of, like, global peace, the development of India and China as potential customers for Russian oil and gas helps us, uh, helps ease Russia off the ledge. Because if they can't do really do business with Europe the way they used to after this, the, the danger becomes then they have nothing, right? Like, then they're a fucking frozen wasteland with a diminishing population and nothing to show for it. But if it turns out that they can sell to India and China and kind of be the, you know, the, the player in that realm for being their gas station, then, okay, well, that's what they'll shift to. And then we'll have more time to sort of maybe hopefully wait for Vladimir Putin to exit the world stage and for different Russian leadership to come along and, and potentially uh, change course. So. Yeah. It's, it's not that we can't civilize Russia. It's that it would take an op- occupation. Or at, at a minimum, the kind of generational leadership necessary to see past their own needs. You know, like leader leaders who are actually servant leaders are very rare and tend to be legendary figures in history because of their rarity. You know, even, even benevolent uh, dictators tend to be self-serving ones. They just may be not as, as cruel as others. 
But, you know, people like Abraham Lincoln are lauded in the course of history because they purposefully took actions that degraded their own personal safety or, or, or legacy in order for the greater good, right? Like that is above replacement level morality. That is. Yeah. They are well above replacement level morality. Like did Abraham Lincoln have to pursue ensuring the passage of the 13th amendment, you know, as a, as something that happened prior to the end of the civil war to ensure that slavery was destroyed forever rather than allowed to linger in some fashion and defeated States because people were still racist, racist as hell and didn't really care. No, but he knew that he saw that. And he's like, I'm going to take the hit necessary to make sure this happens because I cannot allow this moment to pass without, you know, getting rid of this evil from the planet that I know to be evil. And I, I alone have the capacity to eliminate now that sort of leadership. If it exists somewhere within the Russian uh, body politic, if that came to the forefront after Vladimir Putin is, is no longer with us, maybe that uh, leadership could, could help, uh, you know, tame them and civilize them, but I'm not holding my breath. Thanks for joining us on replacement level morality. We'll see you next week.